Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Anna Katarina Schaffner is a writer. She's a professor of cultural history at the University of Kent. And we're going to talk about some really weird philosophical stuff. She's the, um, the head of the social movement arm of a research collective. It's a research collective, but it's really a bunch of philosophers at this institute in the UK called Perspectiva, super groovy organization. And I got really turned on by Anna's article about metaphors. And, and then she said, oh yeah, I've written a whole book about this. I love people that stu study cultural history anyway, because you really get this breadth and widen your lens on how we think the way we think and why. And she challenges. I think we like to pick on psychotherapy a little bit together <laughs> in personal growth, because um, she challenges how we think of growth and the metaphors that we use to talk about ourselves and to talk about change and how it impacts the way we grow. I find it fascinating. She's got a new book out on the subject. Um, what, a, what a gift of a human. And, and if we're talking about listening to people, metaphors and listening for metaphors is a huge part of listening. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and I hope you enjoy Anna as much as I do. Anna Katarina Schaffner. Said it right. Yes, yes, yes. Said it right. You know, I am kind of grooving on it. I, like, I think if I had gone to school and were smart enough to study all the things, I would have studied all the things that you've studied, like literature and cultural anthropology and coaching, and then what you're doing with Perspectiva and Emergence, and then your book on exhaustion, and the new one that you're doing on the art of self-improvement. Well, I think it's probably already done if it's coming out this year, right? Oh my gosh, I'm, I don't want to make you feel embarrassed, but I'm super like, you're, you know, you're, the way that you see the world is super enticing to me. So I'm really excited to have you here. Really excited. How, how did this all come to be for you that you sort of went down this, this path of thinking and, and activism and health and growth? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. First of all, Tracy, I'm so excited to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I don't know. My, I think my profile for a long time was just very crooked and weird and I didn't fit anywhere. And now it finally seems to be coming together for me. So I think I was always torn between my love of literature and my love of psychology. And I was very, very split and I wondered whether I should become a psychologist. But then I think I loved literature a bit more and also psychology in Berlin was very dry and very kind of statistics based, very natural science. And then 
Um, but then it never left me, this kind of passion for psychology and human growth and human improvement. And I um, did a course in um, psychoanalysis. And then, you know, that wasn't quite for me either. There's lots I love about it, but I also felt a bit troubled about some of its aspects. Then um, eventually I discovered coaching and coaching is something I really, really love. And it has taught, taught me so much, you know, like listening skills, which I know is your big gift to the world. And um, so, yeah. And then I also, I think I, I, I started to research this um, topic of self-improvement because it, it's been a topic that has been deeply personally meaningful for me for a really long time. You know, I've, I don't know, I've always struggled with a very self-critical voice and you know I had an eating disorder when I was younger um, so I think self-improvement and this urge to improve myself has been with me all my life and I think as academics we tend to come back to the topics that are really meaningful to us at a deeper level um, so yeah so it, it's natural that I landed you know with, with self-improvement at some point in my life and this felt like the right moment and then when I researched all these great ideas in self-help literature in popular psychology in you know the literature of psychology wisdom literature religious texts and so on more generally speaking I also became very impatient with just the kind of theoretical critical approach to it and I've, I think I've started to feel a bit restless in academia for quite a long time you know I've I've still got my my foot in it but my heart is no longer properly in it hasn't been in it for for a while so so that's when I um started to 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 train as a coach while I was writing this book on self-improvement because I felt a really strong urge to apply and to you know just do something with the wonderful knowledge I had gained and then I discovered Perspectiva and Emerge, which, you know, was another puzzle piece for me because they emphasize uh, Perspectiva as a research collective um, based in London, led by um, the chess grandmaster Jonathan Rosen. And their key emphasis is on the connection between inner transformation and social change. And that was always something I have been interested in. And I've always seen the two as deeply interconnected. And when I discovered this sort of world of thinkers and doers and practitioners out there who, um, who basically take it for granted that the connection between inner change and social change is there and that we need to do something with it, it, it felt a bit like a homecoming mm. to me. I I just love that you you follow this thread of your own curiosity, even if you could have you could have been hemmed in by academia or psychology. But it sounds like your restlessness has kind of propelled you forward. I'm curious to know what made you restless. What were you getting restless about? I yeah, I think I, I am super restless. And I'm very impatient, <laughs> and I think I've always um, you know I've always been really interested in learning. And I, I like I like learning new things. And in academia, you know, you're supposed to become a specialist. You're supposed to work on one field, you know, one author ideally, and you know, and go really, really deep. And I think I've always been naturally more of a systems thinker. I love looking at connections and different field, fields of knowledge. And I like to explore patterns, you know, between cultures and between systems of thought and different disciplines and I've always I don't know been interested in what we all share across cultures across periods 
Um, so I think I've got a sort of pattern mind. My, my mind is always looking for patterns and I'm also sort of my archetypes are engineer and architect. So I think intellectually, I always try to kind of build systems and, you know, and, and try to, yeah, just um, find new new meaning in, in things. And I've, I've always been very interdisciplinary in my interests and um that you know makes me a misfit in academia but <laughs> it keeps me keeps me happy and engaged and i think i just i just love learning new things so i always i always move on to totally different topics as well i get i think my maybe my attention span is more somewhere between academia and journalist i think i like to like to move on to big new topics fairly quickly. Yeah, I your writing is is really stunning and I always envy folks that have that cuz for someone who's impatient, writing is requires a lot of patience to to find the right words and to get them out there in a way that they have an impact and yeah, I I, I love sort of the things that you're doing and I also hear that you're wanting to provoke something. I mean, I think that's why you're part of perspective and while you're particularly part of Emerge. And I'm curious, what are you hoping to provoke if you're going to leave a legacy behind? What do you hope that might be? Yeah. Oh, that's a big question. Um, I, yeah, no, no pressure. <laughs> you can answer it like 10 different yeah. times. So, so it could be one time and then I'm sure in two weeks from now, the response will be different, <laughs> Absolutely. right? No, I think you're right. I like to, I like to argue I think I have a bit of a, um, a controversial controversialist streak in me, so I like to I like to kind of take issue with what everyone accepts to be the case. So I like to look at I like to look at ideas that we take for granted and that we don't really investigate very much. So, for example, my my last book was about exhaustion, and everyone was saying how ours is the most exhausted age ever, and we're also tired because of you know digital technologies and the pressures of modern life. And I thought, is that really the case? You know, have our ancestors really never been exhausted, and aren't we just projecting this nostalgic view on the past? And and aren't we just kind of glorifying our own suffering a little bit by thinking, oh, ours is the most exhausting age ever. And then I, you know, that was kind of the starting point for my book on exhaustion. And I found that people have always struggled with exhaustion and always feared its consequences and always um, been very worried about the social and corrosive effects of exhaustion. And they've just used lots of different metaphors to, to describe exhaustion. And they also develop different narratives about what causes our exhaustion. Um, so I think I'm always interested in, in challenging sort of ideas that we tend to take for granted. So for example, the mind as computer metaphor, you know, has become so ubiquitous. And everyone talks about, you know, we need to change our hardwiring, we need to reprogram ourselves, we need to get rid of our malware, you know, we need to, you know, delete the hard drive, um, and so on. And, and you know, neuro-linguistic programmers, they, they take that metaphor literally. And, um, and I think sometimes sometimes these things that we, we might not even question in our daily lives can, can be quite toxic and quite... Um, you know, quite, quite consequential. And, and, and I think it's always very important to, to, to have a questioning 
mind um, and, and to look at language, you know, language, obviously, because I, I, I trained as a literature scholar. So I'm, I'm very, very acutely aware of metaphors and the kind of language we use and how that transports certain ideological ideas and how it, you know, kind of contains a, a Weltbild, you know, picture of the world. And often we don't question that. And especially when we talk about the psyche, language is so important. Yeah, your piece on metaphor really spoke to me. Um, for, for those listening, you know, I think that, and maybe you can take us into it, when we use metaphor like hard drive and, and rebooting, and there's this way that it shapes how we experience ourselves. If that's the metaphor that our time is using to define growth, for whatever reason we're trying to simplify. I mean, this has the, been the beauty for me in being in Germany is I was in a mono a monoculture really economically in the Silicon Valley. There's really only one industry, which is the tech industry. But the metaphors that get used there changed my sense of self. And I seem to think that that's what you were getting at in that piece is how does this change us, the language that we use, yeah? And I'm curious if you could say more about that, because I'm just fascinated by it, fascinated by it. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's, I think the, you know, the language we use to talk about the psyche is very, very telling because it, it, it reveals the models of the psyche that, that we believe in, you know, as people, but also as, as a culture. So I think the, the metaphors tell us a lot about you know models of selfhood and even more deeply about our purpose about our meaning about um our basic nature so you know for example if we think of ourselves as a computer that means we we think of ourselves as machines that can be fixed you know that we can be fixed by you know technomagical interventions from the outside um, and that our main purpose is to be effective and efficient and to function well and to function better. Um, and also I think the metaphor of the computer really runs counter to us as embodied and um, encultured and ensouled and embedded beings. And we, we are responsive social organisms. We are constantly growing. We are, you know, part of wider communities and we are embedded in, in a social field that shapes us and to which we respond and which we shape in return. And I think the computer metaphor doesn't allow for any of that, you know, because the computer is a tiny little machine that can be working well or not so well, that doesn't form any relationships with anyone that is not in any way responsive to um, outer circumstances and influences. So I think that the computer metaphor is hugely damaging and, and we all use it, you know, it's become so deeply embedded in our uh, cultural fabric, our, you know, our social imagination. And I think it's time for, um, a rethink. And I think, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic has brought home again how um, interrelated we are, how vulnerable we are, how interdependent we are. Um, and I think your initiative, Tracy, is, is one of many that makes me very hopeful that we are actually at the cusp of a more um, pro-social turn. 
you know, that these old metaphors of the selfish little self, the homo economicus out there to hunt for his or her own advantage in a largely hostile environment, you know, which is at the very center of lots of self-help, especially from the 80s and 90s, you know, where that model kind of came to the fore and, and became very prominent. Um, and I think we are seeing a shift right now. And, um, and that shift is even manifest in, in, in the language that people use to talk about the psyche, the self, in, 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 in the latest publications in the self-help um, genre sector, you know, we can see a kind of, I, I, I think we see the beginning of something new, you know, that, that people start to think of themselves as relational animals again, you know, as embedded and part of communities. And of course, that's what your work is all about. Yeah, you know, it, it just what you just sparked in me was an awareness that I wasn't even aware of before we had this conversation, which is when I moved to Germany for the first time in 25 years, I was not an individual therapy. I was doing group work. So I joined a women's group where we mm -hmm. met twice, where I'm still in it, where we meet twice weekly. And it's not so psychological in so much as it's the collective that's growing. So we're growing in community. And it's then led to me, you know, for the nonprofit work that we do, nonprofits are interesting when they grow, they require money to run them. And then, then you get thrust into this capitalist environment where you have to figure out how to raise money to, to grow the nonprofit and keep it sustained. And I started to realize that I'd rather offer training for a fee than fundraisers. And one of the trainings I'm doing right now, I've always wanted to do, which is a couples community. Because I find that for couples mm -hmm. in couples therapy, so often, especially for the males, they don't wanna come to couples therapy because it feels scary to them. It feels like maybe they're gonna be sort of left out or ganged up on. And this communal growth thing has just, captivated my heart and soul. It's like, it's the only way I want to grow now is in group. <laughs> I don't want to do individual one-on-one -on -one work at all. So I, I just had to add that to the narrative because even I am changing, even I am changing and I'm sort of walking proof of what you just said. I want to grow differently, you know? That's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's a real mind shift that is happening, isn't it? You know, and, and that, that becomes evident at lots of different levels. So the move from individual therapy to group therapy or to couples therapy, it's like, I think this is all about, I think, a dawning of the realization that we, you know, we, we need to relate and we're part of a wider social whole. And, and this kind of, this focus on self-actualization and self-realization is beginning to sound very tired and very unsatisfying. And I think a lot of people have realized that it really isn't our pathway to happiness, you know? And, and I, I think it's lovely to see that so many writers and thinkers and practitioners um, like you are, are discovering this anew, you know, and that there's this turn towards, you know, what kind of we can we become and how can we show up differently in groups? And um, I think in, in the self-help world, I noticed a really interesting trend about how basically 
we need to we need to find meaning and purpose outside ourselves again and for a long time it was all about the inside you know self-realization you know developing our potential increasing our own happiness um becoming more effective you know that's part of the computer um you know we're, we're kind of entrepreneurial entities salespeople, and, and we need to interact in a more effective way with other people um i think all of these metaphors are going slightly out of fashion and they're beginning to sound very kind of 1980s 1990s and and i see exciting new developments you know also learning from nature learning from ecosystems, learning from animals and, you know, learning from other cultures. That's something I'm really interested in, you know, as a cultural historian. I, I think we've got so much to learn from other cultures and from the past. You know, our self-improving ancestors had lots of amazing ideas and strategies um, up their sleeves that we, we have all mm. forgotten about. I love that you're saying this because I feel like First, I want to just say that my my whole thing has been experimentation, and I feel like what you bring is this deeper understanding of what I was even doing when I first sat, because I didn't know what I was doing. I had no intention. I just felt an inspiration and went and did it. But what you're doing is you're bringing this deeper level of thought and analysis to it all. And you know, Western European culture, we're the ones that define this individualistic self because Eastern cultures define the self through the collective. And I'm curious what, what you're finding, you know, as East meets West, um, maybe what we can borrow, what we can't borrow, where there's going to, because I don't think that collectivism is all that it's cracked up to be either. It's somehow got to be an integration. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a fantastic question. It's actually one I'm wrestling with right now, <laughs> um, because I think my my dream would be to somehow find a way of combining the strengths from both systems. You know, because obviously um, collectivism and um, suppressing the needs and desires and the uniqueness of the individual is also dangerous in its own right, and you know, and and that brings with it its own, you know pitfalls and disadvantages um, and yet western style individualism and our atomized way of being has has become untenable you know and we know it i think we know we all have a sense that you know our our old ways are dying you know we're at the cusp of of a massive um multiplicity of crisis you know the meta crisis the idea that you know climate environmental degradation, psychological alienation, political um, polarization, they're all coming together. And it's, it's, it's a crisis that we can no longer address with our old ceremonies and our old tools and our old sense of self, I think. We need, we need to change in a fairly radical way. And I'm very much hoping that we can learn from Asian cultures who have for millennia, you know, practiced a, a much more communal group oriented, community or community oriented, um, more interrelational, more pro-social way of being. But of course, you know, we need to preserve some of our own system, some of some of the strengths of our own system. So how we can combine them, you know, like I can't give you a practical answer quite yet, but I'm certainly planning to wrestle with this, you know, um, in writing and, and looking at how we can learn to become more relational. And I, I think we have a lot to learn from, you know, Asian cultures and from, from our ancestors as well, because in the past people thought of themselves as, as naturally relational, you know, they were 
embedded in communities. They um, identified via their groups, you know, small and large. And um, and and there is something I think that we need to go back to and look at because we've 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 shed it we shed it a long time ago. And and I think um, and I think it's not working yeah. anymore. Gosh, there's two questions, so I'm trying to decide which one I want to ask. When you when you were just speaking, what came up inside of me was where is the soul in all of this? Because it feels to me like even just saying individualism, when I said individualism and collectivism, I'm like, yeah, yeah, Tracy, but where's the soul? You got to ask Anna about soul, because I feel like there's this piece that still gets missed where where's the magic anymore? Isn't that what kind of held us together was the magic and the ritual around the magic and the animism and I don't know, just everything seems so damn fun. Yeah, no, I know. Where's the soul? It's a, it's a brilliant question. Um, I think, I hope it's still there somewhere. Maybe it's between us, you know, maybe it's not in us, but more like something that hovers between and we need to kind of... <laughs> capture it again um do you think yeah. that by going and looking at the things because you think about mythology and you think about the stories from our ancestors that that's a gateway to sort of finding that magic that might sort of reanimate us and and become less isolated beings I'm just I don't know what I'm saying I'm just sort of thinking aloud I'm I think I'm feeling hopeful I'm I'm sort of like gosh is there is there some magic pathway to reanimating our soul yeah i think i mean i think souls souls get you know get sparked by different things it may be literature it may be music it may be conversations it might be might be encounters it might be you know feelings of belonging it could be you know i'm sure you've got lots of soul sparks happening in your conversations on on the sideways um so i think i think it's it's about i mean i i think stories can can give a lot of solace you know they, they can be franz kafka once said that um you know literature is the axe for the frozen sea inside us and i love that quotation because i think for me it really encapsulates the power of of, of stories and language to some somehow saw something in us that has been frozen mm. Yeah, I love that. And you know, my father was a painter, or is a painter. Um, and he's a very quiet guy, but his paintings are very loud. And it reminds me of that quote as well, because I think that art in general can do that. Yeah. Yeah. But I love this idea of yeah. it being between us. I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm just grooving on Jungian archetypal stuff right now. I just feel like there's mm, permission giving in that larger frame to embody all the different aspects of a self, which, you know, I think for me, I'm so curious about this concept of loneliness and is loneliness just our individualism or is it something else that's creating all this loneliness, you know? Do you, what do you think about this loneliness thing that everyone's talking about these days? Yeah, I, again, you know, I would, as a, as a historian, I'd be really interested in whether we are the loneliest people who've ever walked the planet or whether loneliness is really an anthropological constant, whether people have always felt lonely in different ways and for different reasons. Um, but I, I would say that obviously the digital world, you know, the 
you know, the digitalization of our lives has has been a major game um, changer. And and I think it I think it must have increased our, our loneliness. You know, there's no way it can't have affected our psychological well-being. And I'm I'm sure it has, you know, in, in the sense that um, we have far less face-to-face -face contact. We have far fewer, you know, risky, vulnerable, messy, uncontrollable <laughs> encounters with people out there in, in the real world. And, and, you know, that everything has become very textual and very visual. Um, that also strips out soul. And yeah, I think, I think loneliness, it would be, would be an interesting one to investigate because I'm sure you know, people have always felt lonely, but at the same time, I, I would be surprised if 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 there isn't isn't a a massive connection between our particular kind of loneliness and and the technologies that we use and the impacts that they have, and you know, and also other developments such as fragmentation, you know, and the kind of falling apart of communities and um, families and social social clusters that used to bind us together in the past um what's your impression do you think do you see a massive increase I, I have the same questions that you do and i think there's so many definitions of loneliness too i think there's the loneliness that we have because we're sorting ourselves on the inside to start with right where we're saying well these feelings are okay and these feelings aren't because like your computer metaphor they're not efficient feelings and i think that when we start sorting ourselves on the inside that's a different kind of loneliness right so there's that and then the technology curation that I think you're describing, where we're curating our outward self or our persona in a way that's even more cloistering. I feel like for me anyway, I feel lonelier, right? When I, when I engage in that kind of behavior. Um, I, I, I do think that I loved what you just said, you know, these messy interactions when we have all these text interactions and it's the messy interactions that sometimes spark soul when you, you know, I had this, I'll tell you this story. This is one of my favorite stories living in Germany in the last year. I've had a lot of, I'm being initiated into something because I've had a lot of accidents. I, I broke my foot in December. I broke my wrist a week ago. I, I, I'm a runner and I run and I twisted my ankle and was off my feet for, for many months last summer. But when I twisted my ankle, I had this really sweet moment where I'm in the forest and I'm thinking, oh, I'm really in trouble now because I've twisted my ankle and I'm so deep in the forest that I'm going to have to crawl my way back to where I can get cell reception to call my husband to come get me. But these two older women come trucking up with their little sticks oh, yeah, I know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they bent over me and I'm lying on the ground crying. And they, you know, I don't speak, my German is horrible, but I understood enough that I understood their care. And it was just this mm -hmm. sweet moment of these two women bent over me as I'm lying on the ground crying and them asking, how can we help you? And I realized if I hadn't have been, been out in this accidental messy situation, I wouldn't have had this magically soulful moment of being incredibly cared about by two strangers who came upon me on a dirt path, you know? 
And how many more of those are we missing because we're sitting inside all day and we're realizing that now with COVID, but it's just, I think this story will live with me forever. It was just the most mm -hmm. sweet, generous moment. And even though I didn't speak their language, they stuck around, you know? That's gorgeous. It's like, like little guardian angels who found you <laughs> with their very Germanic walking sticks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i know i think it's it's about kind of vulnerability and avoiding that more and more as well you know which makes us very lonely this idea of wanting to control it all and um yeah sort of a, an avoider behavior i think that's also very cultural we've become very kind of emotionally risk averse i think and something else you said um also made me think that you know we, we do we do use up a lot of energies on on our inside right so we, we spend a lot of time um probably more than our ancestors thinking about ourselves you know our own little and bigger traumas and dramas and wounds and what we want to improve and how we may be able to improve it so i think that you know you mentioned that as a factor for loneliness that you know that's a lonely activity self-fixing because it's often also something we don't really share you know because it's it involves shame and guilt and um feelings of you know not measuring up and so on so that's a lot of lots of you know like a lot of energy and thought goes into something that we can't really share or don't really want to share yeah. i think that could also potentially make us more lonely and that has something to do with the kind of self-help culture and this impetus that we constantly have to work on ourselves and improve and that we we're not okay as we are and so on yeah. so there's energy that is being used up on the inside that we don't use up um in encounters with others that gets withheld from that yeah i'm so glad that you brought that in and it makes me want to ask you about the discoveries you made for your book in the art of self-improvement because you're sort of on that path even now as you're talking like I'm curious what were the big ahas as you were writing that about our journey of self-improvement yeah so I think what for me what was really interesting was that I I first of all want to take self-help really seriously you know as something that we need to look at very carefully just as we need to look at metaphors of of you know, like the computer metaphors, self-help metaphors, like um, really, I think, shape how we think about ourselves and our purpose and our meaning. And I think self-help literature has an enormous power over us because many people read it. And it's, it's a kind of literature that wants to, that actually gives us very explicit advice on psychotechnologies, you know, how we should shape ourselves, how we should change ourselves. Um, so it really intervenes into the lives of many people who read it. Um, and some of it is, you know, some, there's some great stuff out there and there's some dubious stuff out there. And, um, and I think it's, um, it's also very telling in that it can tell us a lot about our dreams and our aspirations. So self-help, I think, reveals our models of selfhood, you know, how we think of ourselves. Are we atomistic? Are we relational? Are we good? Are we evil? Are we responsible for our own fate or are we determined by outer circumstances? So you have lots of um, 
you know, underlying ideological assumptions that culminate in self-help and that shape the models that people propose and that then people practice in their private lives. Um, so I think, first of all, we really need to take self-help really seriously as a genre. And then um, I think what, what really interested me was also that um, our, our ancestors had so many brilliant strategies, um, so many wise ideas on how we can improve ourselves that we tend to forget because we, we're so hungry for novelty. You know, we always wait for the newest publication and we think, oh, this will be our salvation. Finally, this will be the magic key to happiness forever. And we forget, you know, the, 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 the treasure chest that is that is history and so so i've um i've looked at ancient and new texts and and, and i discovered their kind of 10 core ideas that keep coming up again and again and again so I, my book is structured around 10 core um ideas about self-improvement and i call them the timeless truths because they really sort of resonate through through the centuries through the millennia and um, yeah, and some on that some on that list won't surprise you, and others I I was a bit surprised by. <laughs> I I'm gonna have to uh, wait until the book comes out, I guess, because now I'm like sitting at the edge of my seat. But I love when someone who's an architect like you does some of the heavy lifting for me. <laughs> I appreciate it that you sort of encapsulated and looked at all these pieces and plugged them all in. I I. I, I just, yeah, I'm going to find it totally delicious. Can you give us two? Can you give us two that we can't, we okay. don't have to wait for? Okay, so two. Um, so I think the, the basic one is know thyself. We need self-knowledge um, before we can improve anything at all, because we need to know where we're at, what our preferences are, what our fears and desires are, where they come from. So we need, we need to know ourselves before we can improve ourselves. And then I think control your mind is an interesting one you know, the ancient Stoics, and it resonates through the centuries. So we have the ancient Stoics who talk about lots of different mind control strategies, and then it comes up in cognitive behavior or therapy in a slightly different form. Um, and control your mind, I think, is one, um, one that is to be taken with a pinch of salt because we're not just rational beings, um, which is why another one is use your imagination. I think we also really, really need to involve the imagination when we want to improve ourselves because we're not just rational creatures. <laughs> we're just, you know, there's a huge part of us that that isn't rational and we need to acknowledge that. And, and I think it also, you know, we can't just read a wise book and be transformed by it. I think our imagination needs to be activated. It needs to be involved. Um, and that's where stories come in. That's where metaphors come in. That's where conversations come in and dreaming and mentalizing and imagining and so on yeah, yeah. I mean, be humble is another one that i find personally really really important humility is, is, is an underestimated quality in our yeah. age now i've been thinking a lot about humility too in my own life because it's on the one hand there's this in american culture anyway brand yourself put yourself out there take a risk educate you know the public about who you are and certainly for women take up more space be bigger in the world um and in those efforts you can easily be seen as lacking humility so figuring out a way to find that authentic expression of a self who is also humble 
or has humility is is always interesting to me. Um, God, I could just I just want to go like jump into one of your uni- don't you t- you are a professor as well? Do you teach still? Yeah, I still I I still teach. Yeah, I want to yeah. just come up yeah. and just sit in on one of your classes. Yeah. <laughs> just be so amazing. <laughs> I don't. I don't teach um, what I what I write about. Unfortunately, right now I teach. I teach um, literature classes. Okay. So I teach a class on vampires. Fun, boy. There's yes. a metaphor. God, we had like a gazillion yeah. vampire TV shows out like six years ago. It was like one after the other. Well, I know we're near the end of time. I could go on for days, but I I really do. I, I'm so looking forward to your book, and I, I'm genuinely saying that. Um, but there's this ritual that we have when we're ending a conversation, which is that there's all these thousands of people that are experimenting alongside of me, which is I'm going to sit out on a sidewalk and listen to strangers and practice this art of listening and seeing what happens. And what would you want to offer them or say to them, either a wish or words of wisdom? And there's no right or wrong answer here. Yeah, I would, I would say look at yourself metaphors how do you describe yourselves in you know how do you think of your yourself and your life's purpose how how do you even think of the critical voice inside your head do you call it saboteur do you call it you know negative thinking do you think of it as an inner demon do you think of it as um, automatic negative thoughts in very technical terms. Do you think of it as mind chatter? You know, just be aware of 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 the kind of language you use to think about yourself, and um, and inner voices, and and reflect on it because I think they will tell you a lot about about your deeper values and um, and your deeper models. And and sometimes maybe we need to re rejig our metaphors a little bit because sometimes I think we can take them on unquestioningly because they're just so dominant in the wider culture um but I think looking at our metaphors is 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 a really really um simple but also challenging first step we can all take for for honing our self-understanding that's so beautiful and again I'll, I'll share that article that you wrote too in in the show notes Anna, thank you for being here with us and for inspiring my own heart and mind as I read some of your works and um, for the work that you do at Perspectiva and, and everything. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Tracy. It's lovely to talk to you. You too. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.